The Real Chemistry Podcast connects the dots between our guests and the innovative work they do to show up and shape the future of healthcare. Why? So you, the listener, are encouraged to join us on our relentless pursuit to make the world a healthier place for all. Some may call it idealism. We call it real chemistry. Hello, this is Aaron Strout, CMO of Real Chemistry and host of the Real Chemistry Podcast. Today, we're going to be speaking to a gentleman named Pranam Ben, and Pranam Ben is the CEO and founder of a company called The Garage. And I won't steal too much of our thunder, but a lot of the focus is going to be around uh, value-based care and health equity, two things that we hear a fair amount about today. But Pranam is going to talk a bit about their platform, what their approach looks like, and then what the future of uh, value-based care looks like. Uh, we drill a little bit into what the sentiment is, and you'll hear the term team sport and and why that's so important. So uh, with that, sit down, grab a cup of your favorite beverage, and listen in. All right, Pranam, I am excited to uh, get going this morning, and we're going to talk about digital and data and health equity and all of those good things that I mentioned in the upfront, but um, I want to start with, you know, a place where I usually like to start with most of my guests, and that is, you know, how did you sort of get into where you got to, uh, you have a strong technology background, and then it looks like you made your way over into the healthcare space in around 2003. Let's talk a little bit about that journey and and what took you into healthcare. Sure. Um, Good morning, Aaron, and it's exciting to be talking to you today. Um, You know, I've had a, a fantastic journey to date. Um, you know, blessed with opportunities to impact. Um, I started my career as a software programmer, like you rightly pointed out, and I had an opportunity to uh, move to the States in early 2004, actually. And that's kind of like coincided with my foray into healthcare. Um, And I got this opportunity to join a healthcare startup that was developing innovative technology in healthcare, and that just drew me into the whole uh, healthcare system. And since then, uh, it's been just amazing to do the work that I had the opportunity to do. Well, God bless you, because we need more people doing what you're doing. (laughs) Um, And speaking of, in 2001, you founded your current company called The Garage. And just in poking around your website, uh, you bill yourselves as a high-tech population health management platform Mentioning that you also are deeply rooted in building digital tools that empower transformation for value-based care. So a lot to sort of unpack in that uh, phrase, and actually a lot of things that I know are near and dear to uh, our clients and our people. So tell us a little bit about how those things come together and what the garage, you know, I think people get the general concept, but, you know, talk about how that supports uh, the garage's mission and, and thesis. Yeah, I think just to, uh, before we rationalize with the, the mission of the garage, I think if you just backpedal a little and try and understand my journey to becoming an entrepreneur in healthcare, um, it was born out of a personal experience. Um, you know, we've all been victims of a disjointed uh, process in healthcare. And I had the unfortunate experience of spending an entire night in an ER uh, to be discharged the next morning with no diagnosis. Um, and that kind of led to my that was a trigger. That was a trigger for me to want to do something about it using my asset, which is my understanding of software, technology, and data. And my first venture was born out of that experience uh, in 2009, and I exited out of that business in late 2010 
And the garage was formed in early 2012. And it was just the right timing for us to understand, um, you know, the system had gone top heavy, top down heavy, and we needed to, uh, something had to give, something had to change. And that's when the, the earliest models of value-based care were being formed in our industry. And when I had an opportunity to understand the business model of value-based care, it just clicked. It just made complete sense. And what I realized back then was value-based care can be the answer to many things that's broken in healthcare, right? So that's how the garage was formed. And I called it the garage to pay tribute to every innovative company at scale that started in a garage. But the whole, but the background to that was that this transformation to value-based care, I had a sense that it would cause major disruption, right? Because you're fundamentally changing a business that's been status quo for decades. And in doing that, there will be chaos, but there will also be massive opportunities to innovate. And we wanted to be that company that focused on those opportunities. And that's how this journey began. And the first five years of the garage were about truly understanding what does value-based care mean to all the constituents in our ecosystem? What does it mean to primary care? What does it mean to specialty care? And most importantly, what does it mean to the patient or the consumer? And once we figured that out, we said, okay, that's when we kind of like evolved our identity in the space, right? So if you say, this is what value-based care is, and then your thing is, what do you bring to the table, right? And we realized our identity is to be the platform that allows for value-based care to happen. And that's how the, the garage kind of like came out of the woods, if you will, uh, five years ago, and we made our platform available. The platform is called Bridge. But the whole intent of the platform is for it to function as an operating system. So allowing for value-based care to happen by bringing data and technology together. So that's basically our identity. That is what we do. And the, the recipe for allowing value-based care to happen is a very effective population health management uh, strategy. Um, so that's, that's who we are. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess one of the things I want to dive into is it's really a two-part question. I think most people have heard the term value-based care. We've heard it a lot, which is part of the second part of my question. But let's talk a little bit about like what does that mean when someone says value-based care? And then the, the second part is why is it so important these days? I feel like over the last probably three or four years, we've really seen payers, providers, you know, healthcare companies leaning into this concept that you know, started a while back, but really seems to be gaining momentum now. The first thing you need to understand is that, you know, we, the way, at least, the way I came at it was, you know, the value-based care is not an absolute solution to the things that we need to fix in healthcare. It is a big step in the right direction, right? And if you look at the things that ail our industry today, whether it is uh, wastage, whether it is, um, you know, an uncontrollable spend, whether it is a very high utilization of high cost systems. There are many things that plague our industry, middlemen that are costing the system more than helping the system. There are many other things that kind of like have caused uh, the system to be untenable and not sustainable in the future. So we had to kind of like fundamentally redesign the business model, if you will. And value-based care is like I said, it's, the, it's a big step in that direction, right? The premise is, you know, traditionally healthcare rewarded services and activities 
But now we are going to modify that and start rewarding outcomes or results. That's the basic shift. It's a paradigm shift. It's a transformational uh, thought. But that, I think, in my mind, is the start of this journey that, to, that will allow for many other things to happen that will change healthcare for good in the coming years. So that's basically what value-based care means to us. You know? And the way you do that, if you look at how am I going to track outcomes, how am I, how am I going to yield better outcomes, you have to create a collaborative um, community-facing experience that will allow you to put data first and provide more affordable and more accessible healthcare to everyone. Yeah, no, I, that, that is helpful. And I think the other thing I like about it is that it does start to get away from the tactical into the more strategic, right? Because when you're rewarding outcomes, you're not looking at the short-term cost because it might be, you know, expensive to do, you know, a particular dose of something or a particular treatment. But if long-term you can keep someone out of the ER or out of the hospital and save, you know, thousands, if not millions of dollars and help them improve their, the quality of their, you know, lives, then that's a huge win, right? So, um, kudos to you all for sort of helping to enable that and enable it at scale and creating that platform. One of the things I want to lean into, and I was intrigued by this, is you, back in September, you did a featured talk at the National Association of ACOs, and you did a talk, and I, I love this title, Tiny Tasty Morsels, and went on to do a blog post, uh, beautiful presentation. Yeah. One of the things that you sort of leaned into was something called the quintuple aim. Um, let's talk about what the four components are, and I know we'll drill down into one of those in a minute. Yeah, I think the the quintuple aim was is, was born out of the... A uh, heavy focus that the industry has around health equity. Uh, so we kind of like say, okay, we initially, when Malibus Care was formed, the inertia was around the AAA, which is better care, lower cost, and improved health of communities, right? And then there was talk about the quadruple, where we said, okay, let's add, because the, the system cannot sustain the kind of care that is uh, required in the coming years. So we have to create a more sustainable model for care teams to provide care to all communities. And now this, you know, the shift and focus towards health equity, which came to the forefront when we all went through the pandemic, right? So now we have this critical aim, which is the five pillars of focus or the five goals, which is better care, lower cost, improved health, a more sustainable care system, and equitable access to care. And it makes complete sense that if you can solve for all five, you pretty much have solve for you know the need to change healthcare for good, right? So we took that and then we kind of posturized it by saying, okay, if we are going to drive the entire ecosystem towards that quintuple A, how can we design a digital first, data first, human-centric experience? Because you're never going to take the human component out of healthcare, right? So healthcare is very real. We're all we're all part of the process. When, when health is a, uh, you know, it's kind of like, it's the most important thing for all of us as consumers, right? So if you say that, okay, we're going to create a digital first, data first, human-centric approach to achieving the quintuple aim, what you quickly realize is that there is a lot, there is a lot of data, there's, a, there's an exhaust of data that we have to make sense, we have to normalize and we have to enable actionable insights where it matters. So we said, okay, the approach to that is 
if we can take that exhaust and help all the relevant stakeholders to listen to the signals and reduce the noise, right? So that was the perspective that, hey, can we serve tiny tasty morsels? Can we give that simple, meaningful, actionable tools and insights at any point of care? It doesn't have to be at the physician's office. It could be when the patient is at school, in their home, in the community, right? Then you basically allowed for care to happen anywhere and not just as a reactive process when the patient falls sick. So that was the premise of saying, let's identify those tiny tasty morsels. And it actually, there is an extension to it that says tiny tasty morsels from an inclusive hub. So the platform functions as the hub. And we say inclusive because you have to be inclusive of people, you have to be inclusive of data, and you have to be inclusive of workflows to allow for those tiny tasty morsels to, uh, to be delivered and to be consumed. So that's how we came up with that. And we have an architecture for it. That's the, um, the architecture was what I presented at NACOS uh, two months ago. And uh, the, I mean, what was humbling was the reception was very positive. And if not anything, the intent, my intent was to uh, trigger a dialogue, you know, not necessarily talk about a commoditized solution because I think we are all evolving into what the new healthcare world looks like. So the intent was to trigger a dialogue, have a meaningful dialogue. And I think we were successful for the most part. Yeah, I think that's the thing that people forget is that this is a team sport. I was just at the health conference. Uh, it will be now a few weeks by the time this airs. But I heard that a few times. Yeah. And that if we think about healthcare being a team sport, that's really where we start to be able to make meaningful outcomes. And I love that approach of not trying to overthink it. Sometimes I think when we try to overthink it and come up with this huge grand solution that it's paralyzing. You're absolutely right. I think we need to have a collective uh, commit uh, from the industry. And that's the, that's the spirit at which we committed as well. So when we go into a potential partnership, we are not basically saying, hey, this is a zero-sum game, right? We're going and saying, you know, we're going to partner with all your moving parts. We're going to partner with all your entire, your entire ecosystem to help you achieve the quintuple aim, you know, faster, better in a more economical way. And there have been situations where we've gone to situation, we've realized that it's, it's not a good situation for us. And we've kind of walked away from it. You know what I'm saying? So we are very conscious. We are a very conscious team in that if we have, if we are not delivering value and we are not helping providers go, you know, uh, drive towards that quintuple aim, uh, we don't have a role to play. So that's that's where we begin, you know. No, I, I love that thinking. I guess one of the things I want to drill into, you know, over the pandemic, we've heard a lot about clinical trials, hmm. but part of the quintuple aim is this concept, you know, rallying around health equity or, or you know, equitable health for all. And you talk about um, using data, technology, and digital to improve health equity. So beyond clinical trials, which I think, again, we all learn what those were, how they work, the fact that we don't have enough centers close to cities. So some of that's changing. We're getting decentralized. But how else can the the data, the technology, and the digital work together to help create more equitable outcomes You know, in this value-based system? I think, you know, I, I'm a technologist and a uh, lifelong optimist. But I absolutely believe, Aaron, that Digital tech and data have the greatest role to play, the strongest role to play in helping us achieve the, how will you define health equity? In fact, you know, I was talking to one of my uh, customers 
last week. And, uh, you know, basically what we were trying to understand, if you say, what does health equity mean to us? Right? If you really think about it for a moment, what does it mean? Right? And you will realize that it's easier to explain what it is not, and it's harder to explain what it is. Because what it's not is what we've all experienced in our communities. The things that we read about, the things that we see, the things that we experience ourselves are glaring examples of a lack of equitable access to care. But what does it truly mean, right? And to posturize that, we cannot understand it from two perspectives. One, structural inequities have led to health inequities. So health inequity is not a standalone phenomenon. There, are, there is a background for years and decades that have led inequities in the structure of the society and the system that health equity is a part of them. So it's very difficult for us to say, we are going to go and fix health equity for good. It is not going to happen. It's a journey, right? The second thing that you know, you kind of understand, and I hope there is no debate around this by anybody, is the fact that to achieve health equity, you have to achieve data equity. What I mean by that is, if you cannot solve for access to data, normalized understanding of data, structured realization of data insights, how are you going to even uh, kind of like calibrate the realization of health equity? where it matters, right? So that's the two things. Structural inequities have led to health inequities, and there is no health equity without data equity. Then we say, okay, if I try to look for solutions around access and affordability, the accessibility and the affordability, digital technologies and data can absolutely have a major impact in access. And we are actually working on it. Every single day, the team at the garage is working with uh, thousands of providers across the country to enable a democratized access to care, whether it is synchronous or in-person. We are empowering that every single day. So the belief that technology and data can solve for access is deeply rooted. And we saw that with the pandemic and the, the exponential use of telehealth, we saw that, right? So access can be solved. Affordability, the there are many, it's a very complex issue, right? Because there is a lack of transparency, in, in our industry, which hurts on how we come at this particular problem. But I believe in time, value-based care will be a big uh, factor in solving for affordability. So if you can solve for accessibility and affordability, in many ways, you're solving for or improving equitable access to care. So that's basically our posture. So we have a background we have an architecture, we have a point of view, and we're working with all our partners to move the needle. Can I ask you a question just leaning into that? Because you sure. mentioned you've gone around the country and you talk to these, um, you know, payers, providers. Mm. Is there a general sentiment that value-based care is like, I think it's one of those things where it's like eating healthy is a good thing, right? Or not drinking right. too much is a good thing, but that doesn't mean we all follow right. that lead. Like, is there a general sort of alignment among those groups that really do understand the value of not only value-based care, but also this achieving health equity? And I love that data equity is, is critical uh, component of it, but, you know, talk about that, like, because if the ecosystem isn't all collaborating and cooperating you know, at the end of the day, we all have to make sure we hit our numbers. You know, we have revenue numbers, we have margins, things like that. And 
you know, people are optimists, people are good people who work in healthcare, but it is a business, right? And and right. so a lot of times business can get in the way of doing what the right thing is. If you if you think about it, if you just look at it and we say, my personal experience being involved in value-based care for the last 10 years, I would say the the adoption and the response has been mixed, is my best way to describe it. But if you look at the data, you know, I can have my point of view on it. But if you just look at the data, nothing speaks louder than data, right? So if you just look at the growth and the, uh, just look at the stats, you know, overall reimbursement and uh, the amount of risk contracts being uh, you know, uh, shared by the payers and the provider participation in value-based care contracts and whatnot, it's, it's been growing year on year. You know, it has never stagnated. So that's the good sign. That's a sign that you want to lean on, right? That's always a good sign. You can't argue that, right? So I'm very optimistic about where we are. And I think the fact that we have more than 40% of the reimbursement in this country having a value-based modifier in the contract is a positive sign. You know, it's an absolute data-driven positive sign. So um, the current state, I would say there is a mixed reaction to it, um, but the numbers are growing and we are moving in the right direction. Well, it's encouraging to hear, and that does lead to my next or last serious question that we'll get into a little bit later. Uh, what is the future of value-based care look like over, let's say, the next five years? I So I'm I'm optimistic, like I told you. You know, I'm very optimistic. Um, but at the same time, I don't want to be naive in predicting specifics. I'm, I'm someone that looks at... There are a lot of factors that are going to drive the adoption of value-based care. But my hope is that in five years, value-based care would be the primary and mainstream model of reimbursement. And most importantly, I hope that most of our senior population, all our Medicare patients that um, have the most need in healthcare, are able to uh, leverage, are able to benefit from value-based care and receive the care they deserve, receive the experience they deserve. I think if we as a country can get to that, that would be a a major win, regardless of the politics around it, regardless of the uh, challenges around healthcare. If we as a system can get to that point, you know, where value-based care is a mainstream mode of reimbursement and all Medicare and our senior population are benefiting from that, we would have made a major, major progress in our evolution. I'm going to ask you one more question that I didn't send over to you ahead of time, but you just spurred something and, and we have a heavy audience of people that work in the life sciences world, as well as, you know, med device. And I guess one of the things I'd love to know is if this is a team sport, if we need to all pull together to make this happen, what is your request of those companies that provide the medicines and the therapies and the devices that, you know, help in this process? What can they do? Um, to sort of all pull in the same direction? They, they have a major role to play, Aaron, and I'll tell you why. So if you look at, let's take the patient out of the equation for a moment, right? And if you try to look at the health of a community at large, and you try to understand the factors that influence the overall health of a population in a community, you will realize that the actual medical care or the clinical aspect of that particular equation influences less than 20% of the health outcomes. It's the social, it's the lifestyle, it's the genetics, it's the the education, all these other factors that come into play 
that actually define the overall health of population, right? So if you say that I want to rationalize with that and go beyond what mainstream healthcare defines as a clinical intervention, you have to allow for devices, you have to allow for non-mainstream, you have to allow for life sciences to see into the day-to-day activities, the day-to-day life of every patient in every community. So you have to break down the barriers and almost become a part of the daily life of that patient. And to enable that, you have to, you know, kind of like empower and champion the use of, you know, wearables and the use of uh, devices that can help patients monitor and track their own health. And most importantly, for them to own up to and be responsible for their behaviors and habits, you know. So I think they play a big factor in breaking down those barriers and allowing for, you know, preventive care and personalized care personalized medicine to be part of daily life of of all uh, people in all communities. Well, thank you for that thoughtful answer. I appreciate that. And sorry for a curveball, but sounds like you knew exactly (laughs) what the right answer was. Um, So I do like to end on a lighter note, and this is just meant to sort of help people, our listeners get to know, you know, our guests Um, consider you're stuck on a proverbial, you know, deserted Island and you can only bring one album with you. Which album would you choose and why? (laughs) <laughs> that, that's that's the toughest question of this whole session uh, I, I will tell you i talked to a lot of smart people and that is the one inevitably that they have the hardest time with <laughs> <laughs> but i tell you uh, regardless of which album i want to listen to knowing that the battery of the device that i'm going to listen on is going to survive for a day or more or best um, i would pick any taylor swift uh album because my daughter is a major fan of taylor swift she's 15 and I'm being forced to listen to all the songs in our car rides together. So it doesn't matter which album, let's just pick a Taylor Swift album and play it all that. You know, I love that answer for a few different reasons. One, uh, you know, it will still be relevant because, you know, Taylor Swift is always relevant, but there's been this yeah. huge blitz, you know, she crashed Ticketmaster because oh, yeah, she, uh, <laughs> she went on sale. But I think the thing I really liked about that Pranam is I have two daughters as well as a son. And I remember having a conversation with a colleague early days and he's like, blah, blah, blah. You know, I, my kids listen to crappy music and we always get into fights about it. And I said, you know, to this person, I'm like, look, I get it. Like I get that, you know, people like they have their musical tastes and maybe you're a a man of the seventies or eighties or whatever, but there's so many other things that you can fight or disagree with your kids on. Music is one where you can come together. And I've had the joy of actually coming together with my kids and teaching them and taking them to music festivals so I love the fact that it's not, you know, it's, this is my favorite album, but it's the idea of, you know, my daughter listens to this. I listen to this and, you know, I'm willing to embrace that versus bucking it. And I think a lot of people like to, you know, sort of poo poo Taylor Swift, but she's a brilliant songwriter and she's done an amazing job for herself. And there's a reason why she's become so popular. So and, and if you lo- look at love that. Answer. And if you look at a fan base, Adam, she's, she's had an influence. She's had an impact, right? I mean, when I grew up, I had a a particular type of music that had influence on me, right? Growing and all that. And now I, I kind of look at it and say, Taylor Swift's music has that same kind of influence on my daughter. And I cherish the memories of the music that I grew up on. And I want to support the music that my daughter is growing, growing up on. So absolutely, I relate to what you said. Well, great way to end the uh, conversation. This is Aaron Strout, CMO of Real Chemistry host of the Real Chemistry Podcast, and I've had the pleasure of speaking to Pranam Ben, who is the founder and CEO of The Garage, and they are putting good out into the world, 
in a very pragmatic way in teeny tasty morsels. So um, with that, thank you so much, Pranam, and uh, appreciate your time today. Thank you, and thanks for having me. Want more episodes of the Real Chemistry Podcast? We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Stitcher app, or iHeartRadio via the Health Podcast Network. Go to realchemistry.com for more info.